In normal circumstances, there are no three sweeter syllables to utter. Told you so. But for the countries along Russia's borders with Europe, the countries, that is, which have been, to some extent or another, unwilling hostages of Moscow within living memory, that moral victory has doubtless felt a somewhat hollow one this last year or so. The warnings about Russia sounded from the Baltic to the Black Sea have been validated, and the folly they cautioned against has been recognised. The folly of believing that Russia, or at least President Vladimir Putin's version of Russia, was an essentially reasonable and collegiate partner, which could be coddled and co-opted into being just another European country. In this special episode of The Foreign Desk, we speak to people who have led or are leading some of those Eastern European nations. We'll hear from the President of Slovenia, the Prime Ministers of Lithuania and Kosovo, a former President of Estonia and a former Deputy Prime Minister of Latvia. Why wasn't Eastern Europe taken more seriously? How should Europe's security architecture change now that it is? And should one of these countries provide, perhaps even in the form of one of today's guests, the next Secretary-General of NATO? This is The Foreign Desk. In 2021, when I first read the speech of despotic President Putin in Valdai Club in Sochi, where during the discussion they were mentioning that in 2021 they are celebrating 800 years of Alexander Nevsky and 300 years of Peter the Great, to me it looked exactly like Milosevic. I see a stark similarity in a dictator who wants to create a direct link with important historical events rendered into myths. We have to discuss misinformation and disinformation as well, because the influence of the media in the region of Western Balkans and in Moldova and in Georgia is something we must not neglect. I think that the main responsibility lies on us politicians. The higher you are, more careful you have to be in words. And second in line, but not less important, are the media. You're listening to The Foreign Desk. I'm Andrew Muller. Later in the show, we'll be hearing from the Prime Minister of Kosovo, the President of Slovenia, the Prime Minister of Lithuania and a former President of Estonia. But our first guest is Dr Artis Pabriks, former Deputy Prime Minister and Minister of Defence and Foreign Affairs for the Republic of Latvia. Dr Pabriks is currently the Director of the think tank the Northern Europe Policy Centre. I spoke to Dr Pabriks here at Midori House and began by asking for his take on the future of Eastern Europe Europe and the region's role in shaping European security policy. If we are analysing now the situation around the war in Europe and Russian invasion in Ukraine, then I think among others, as one of your prime ministers told, never miss a good crisis, among others it is suggesting that countries in Northern Europe, including the Baltic states, should have a better say in Europe because we have been traditionally among the largest supporters of Ukrainian freedom. We have been proportionally top supporters also for uh, deliveries of aid. And I think we gained, I will not afraid to say this, also some kind of moral authority because, for instance, being a member of European Union, we always hear these speeches that Union is based on values and we stand for these values. And now the Ukrainian defense actually gives you a great chance to prove it. And I think we did it. 
and we will continue to do this, of course, also for natural and practical reasons, because we see this war against Ukraine also as a war against us, because we know that if Ukrainians fall, we might be the next in line, which is not the case with many other Western, Western European countries. So, in short, I believe in a greater future of Northern Europe, and I also see our Northern European dimension as a bridge with United Kingdom and transatlantic alliance, because we are supporters of Americans in Europe. We believe that in these stormy weathers in the world, Europe and America must stick together. And this is why also my think tank is devoted to this, to bring together more integrated Northern European perspective. But a year later, what have you made of how Europe has responded? Have you been pleasantly surprised in any respect, in particular, I think, by how Germany has reacted? You were very critical of them at the time. Well, I have been critical quite a long time, and I know that I'm not best friend of Councillor Schultz anyway. But there are positive and negative marks. And of course, we in Europe and in general, we are used to think about ourselves positively. And I would say Putin miscalculated our answer. He was thinking that we will be more fragmented. But on the other hand, we must have also enough of healthy self-criticism. The West actually was caught unprepared with this war. We were not prepared to face it. And even I, I was not thinking that Putin will make such a great military offensive in all fronts against Ukraine. And why did he do this? Because he probably miscalculated this Western response, because he was looking backwards in the history on our responses to invasion in Georgia, annexation of Crimea, and he could see that this response was fragmented, weak, limited, money and not values were ruling, and the engagement with Russia continued in those days. So he was thinking that it will be the same. I must say that I am irritated about this lengthy discourses and discussions, for instance, about offensive and defensive weapons, what we should give and what we should not give, because it's artificial discussion, offensive or defensive weapon. When a country is at war, it's all pretty much the same yes. thing. You isn't have it? to defend mm. yourself. And if Ukrainian is given a simple handgun and he is at the border between Ukraine and Russia and he can shoot with a handgun across the border into the Russian territory, is this now offensive weapon and we will take away this handgun from him? No, we will not do this. So I think what is irritation in our region is that we are giving this assistance in such a small piece. And I see here two reasons for that. The one reason is that simply many politicians, especially in Western Europe, they lost the capacity to think about politics in a traditional manner of conflict resolution, of a war resolution. And in the last two, three decades, with the influence of European Union integration, they were thinking that they can solve any conflicting issues just by engagement, dialogue, mutual dependency, which actually is vulnerability. This was the wishful thinking that underpinned 30 years of engagement with yes, Russia. Yes, this is the Schroederism, I might say, that we will trade... We will buy something from them and, you know, they will be, of course, dependent from us because they will sell to us their oil and they will never engage in any hostile activity against us. And this is totally different. You know, if you ask traditional UK citizens, German citizens, French citizens, how many of them would be ready to take a weapons in hand and to defend their country and their freedom until death, sorry for these words, 
then the numbers are it's somewhere between 20 and 30 percent. Is that a number that increases when all of a sudden that does not seem like a theoretical prospect? Is there any extent to which you think we're seeing that at a nation state level among those Western European countries? I mean, the Munich Security Conference, when you think of the history, extraordinary to hear a German defence minister basically saying this war with Russia must be won. Yes, and Germans didn't tell this still in Madrid summit. There were different language in Madrid summit. So the things are changing, but that takes a lot of time because I wrote in Financial Times an article, and it was noted also here in the United Kingdom, about necessity to support with full force Ukrainians on 28th of February, mm. four days after the war. Now, if you look to the weapon deliveries, the question about delivering tanks, still pending discussion on planes, now it's a year. So how many lives would be saved? And I understand that people are changing, but for me it's painful that it takes so much time because I'm coming from a small border country. And if so much time is needed in a case when, for instance, we are attacked, then this is a question for us of death and life. So hopefully we will learn from this war that actually there are certain things which, despite of development of civilization, progress, unfortunately, didn't change. It is obviously too early to be thinking seriously about, I guess, a post-war scenario or a post-Putin scenario, because we don't know how this is going to end. But an absolutely irreducible fact of life for Latvia, for all the Baltic states, is that you are always going to have to live next door to Russia. Do you dare to imagine any outcome in which that might be no threat at all. We would be happy to have such a relationship, but we must be realists. And of course, once we speak about security, we must always keep in mind the possible worst scenario. And the things at this moment are not so rosy, because when the war will end, and it will end one day, the Russia still be there. And we can compare the Russian society, for instance, with German Nazi society during the Second World War, because this is the most known example from our own history in Europe. And we can see now that Russian society is actually very deeply based on these fake news and fake assumptions and in many ways zombed by Putin's regime. And differently from post-Nazi German society, I don't think that the liberal democracies would have any chance to reinforce any type of re-education on Russian society as it was in Germany. So we simply have to assume that even when Russia will lose this war, it will remain in the same psychological mood where they are now, where they simply think that they are the greatest people and they have all the rights to abuse all their neighbors. So in short, they will pose a threat for the next decade for all the neighboring countries. That was Dr. Artis Pabriks, former Deputy Prime Minister of Latvia and Director of the Northern Europe Policy Centre. You're listening to The Foreign Desk. Last month, Kosovo celebrated the 15th anniversary of its Declaration of Independence. The last 12 months of Ukraine's history have reminded Kosovo and anxious Balkan watchers that nothing is ever certain, especially not in this part of the world. There are parallels, should anyone want them, between Kosovo's relationship with Serbia and Ukraine's with Russia, the smaller country seeking to forge its own path despite a larger neighbour and former occupier which won't quite let it go. 
Our next guest is the Prime Minister of Kosovo, Alban Kurti. I began by asking the Prime Minister whether, after 15 years, Kosovo's independence seems assured. Yes, I think the desire of people for freedom and equality is unstoppable. And our liberation and our independence are just expressions of that. Kosovo is a double success story now. We are a success story of NATO intervention to stop genocide of Milosevic regime, which was leading at that time Yugoslavia, not only Serbia. And second, we are a success story of having quality democracy and economic growth going together hand in hand. There is a big struggle over narrative in the world today. And there are certain powers and superpowers who want to show that for development, you actually don't need democracy. But we are not a big country, yet great example of this nice combination of democracy and development. Last year, we marked 4% of GDP as economic growth after you subtract the inflation. Exports increased by 23%. Foreign direct investment by 44%. I guess when people are hopeful, they rather spend than save. Plus, when they see that there is no corruption in the government, they are more ready to contribute in taxes. So we are optimistic, proud of our achievements, but there are numerous challenges. On one hand, because of multiple crises in Europe and in the world, and on the other hand, of the peculiar situation that we have with our aggressive northern neighbor who still does not recognize our republic. Do you see parallels in Ukraine's relationship with Russia and Kosovo's with Serbia? And do you see parallels in your situation with that of President Zelensky, who, like you, arrives at the leadership of his national government through somewhat unorthodox means? I see uh, similarities in disintegration of Soviet Union and disintegration of former Yugoslavia. Soviet Union disintegrated mainly peacefully, But in the end, we got a big octopus with tentacles all over in Belarus, then inside Ukraine, Transnistria in Moldova, South Ossetia, Abkhazia, and so on and so forth. In case of former Yugoslavia, we don't have big octopus. We have rather small quadripus. (laughs) Republika Srpska in Bosnia-Herzegovina, Serbs in Montenegro, illegal structures in north of Kosovo and Serbian Orthodox Church all over. Now, the other similarity is that Belgrade, just like Moscow, considers its immediate neighbors as temporary states, which are there to fail. So there will be another window of opportunity in the near future for new expansions. And in 2021, when I first read the speech of despotic President Putin in Valdai Club in Sochi, where during the discussion they were mentioning that in 2021 they are celebrating 800 years of Alexander Nevsky and 300 years of Peter the Great. To me, it looked exactly like Milosevic. In 1989, he was marking with a big celebration 600 years of Fushkosov-Kosovo-Polya battle with Ottoman Empire, where basically 
all the tribes of that time participated. There were no nations in modern sense of the word. And immediately after that big celebration, he launched wars in Slovenia, Croatia, Bosnia and Herzegovina, and then in Kosovo. So basically, I see a stark similarity in a dictator who wants to create a direct link with important historical events rendered into myths, and then under the weight of history, trying to show how trivial electoral democracy is. That's why this absolute domination of history, partisan interpretation of history over democracy and people is key characteristics of proto-fascist dictators prior to them launching a new war. It happened with Milosevic, it is happening with Putin. Do you have right now any kind of, I guess, personal relationship with anybody in the Serbian government, whether it's President Vucic or otherwise, where you're able to have conversations like of this sort fairly frankly? Not in the Serbian government, but in Serbian society. There are intellectuals, artists, people of culture, of science, and also some people who are in opposition. For example, now, on the occasion of 15th anniversary of Declaration of Independence, Nikola Sandulovic, president of the Republican Party of Serbia, came to Kosovo, independence, and he also visited the graveyard with 59 tombs of Yashari family members who were killed in early March 1998 and apologized. So he is in the opposition, but he apologized in the name of the honest Serbia, as he has put it. I think the name of his party is also indicative because Serbia is in this crossroad to become a kingdom with another Alexander as king or to become a republic where Nikola Sandulovic, as president of a small party called Republican Party, offers a completely different and democratic vision. But going back to that 15 years, are you, I guess, disappointed, regretful, whatever, that still those Serbs who live in Kosovo clearly have not bought into Kosovo yet, that they don't feel like it's their country necessarily? 15 years ago, when we declared independence, international community, who helped us a lot to liberate ourselves, told us that Kosovo independent state cannot be Albanian, even though 93% are Albanian. 4% are Serbs and 3% are other minorities. Bosniak, Turks, Roma, Egyptians, Ashkali, and Gorani. And now Belgrade is trying to not allow Serbs to integrate by intimidating them with illegal structures, but also by asking for an association of Serb-majority municipalities, therefore on ethnic basis, which is not possible according to the spirit of our constitution. I have good contacts with so many Serbs, but they are very frightened from Belgrade, and I have a Serbian minister in my government. He is minister for communities and return, Nenad Rashic, but his son has been beaten by some people from these illegal structures, but he's a very courageous man, and he doesn't surrender to Belgrade dictate. And unfortunately, Serbian Orthodox Church all over our region did not play a constructive role, 
they very much fight political pluralism. And at the same time, they are behind the idea of illiberal democracy. I don't believe in a liberal democracy. You know. There's no democracy without political pluralism and human rights. And Serbian Orthodox Church goes for one party, one state, one leader, one religion. Last December in particular, when there was that crisis of roadblocks being built in northern Kosovo, were you as nervous as a lot of people were about where that might lead? Well, I am vigilant. I am worried. Being worried is in my job description. (laughs) But never afraid. 854 police operations we did last year in Kosovo. Over 1.8 tons of illegal narcotics we confiscated. 69 criminal gangs were destroyed. 16 illegal pathways in the north have been closed. But they erected in December 16 barricades in legal roads with armed people, dark uniforms and masks. Many of them being together with Wagner mercenaries and so-called night wolves. So the situation was tense. But these people who erected these barricades, they did that out of fear from rule of law. And again, they removed themselves out of fear from rule of law. And situation in the north is peaceful thanks to police and people who are generally good. But these illegal structures turned into criminal gangs will pose a challenge to our state also in the weeks and months to come. However, my major concern now is financial as well. 320 million euros they owe to the state of Kosovo for not paying electricity since 1999. And another 17.3 million euros for not paying for water supply. This cannot continue forever. And I'm trying to not cause any humanitarian crisis by disconnecting them. But at the same time, we have to bring people within the formal system of a democratic republic. That was the Prime Minister of Kosovo, Alban Kurti, speaking to us at the Munich Security Conference. You're listening to The Foreign Desk with me, Andrew Muller. Our next guest is Kirsty Kalulaid, former president of Estonia, a position she held from 2016 to 2021. She is currently the global advocate of the UN Secretary General for Every Woman, Every Child. I began by asking if it now feels to her like there is more of a willingness to listen to the Baltic states' concerns about Russia since last year's invasion of Ukraine. Sometimes it is still the feeling that they say you were right, but they still don't listen to us. (laughs) Because also uh, hearing yesterday President Zelensky and having talked also extensively with members of the Ukrainian parliament yesterday evening who are here, then their disappointment is still that there is kind of piecemeal support. It's not all out. It's gradually adding the firepower of the Ukrainian army. But if you are an Ukrainian doesn't matter, a member of the parliament, a fighter. There are many injured fighters also here in Munich. And they say people doesn't seem to get this, that it's not 24 hours. It's tens of soldiers, maybe sometimes more, 
who are dying meanwhile. So I sense there is a feeling in Ukraine that actually our response should be more rapid and all out, meaning, of course, warplanes, what they are now asking to be provided with, so that this war does not last unnecessarily long time. They're convinced they can win. We are convinced they can win. And after all, without Western help, Russia wouldn't have won the Second World War. (laughs) Now this help is on the Ukrainian side. I kind of think Russia sees that as precisely the opposite of World War II. (laughs) Yes, but it was a concerted effort, whichever side you are on, whichever way you look at. But then they were together. And now it is Ukrainians who are together with the economic and military might of the West. And this has to make a difference. The question is, how long does it take? And of course, what Ukraine decides, what is the difference? That, that incrementalism that you mention, what do you ascribe it to? Is there still a nervousness among a lot of European countries about stepping over some imaginary red line that Russia has drawn somewhere? Yes, Ambassador Ruge is having today at lunchtime a discussion about how to avoid escalation. I mean, if you are facing an adversary like Putin, I plan to go there and say that all our rationale doesn't help here because we are not facing an adversary who is playing a game of rational decision making. He's clearly playing a different game and therefore it's a waste of time actually to think what he might consider escalation on our side and we should simply do the right thing. Do you think we should just completely stop caring what Russia might regard as unacceptable? Whatever the risks might be in provoking whatever reaction from Russia, however unreasonable or irrational it might be. Russia anyway says that it's in war with NATO. Otherwise, it couldn't explain why they're losing in Ukraine, because losing in Ukraine is too shameful. So they can declare whatever. So however much we think we haven't escalated, if they decide we have, then there might be a change. But looking also how things are now developing, the irritations in Moldova, etc., it seems to be that we need to be quite firm, because this is precisely what Putin is looking for us to be permanently worried and slowing our steps in order not to provoke. But as I said, it's meaningless on our side. That being said, what were the reasons for your reservations then, which I know you expressed about Estonia's recent decision to halve Russia's embassy staff in Tallinn? I didn't see a concrete reason to do it at that exact point in the time. I mean, I would have understood in the beginning of of the war or when the first war crimes were discovered or some other kind of radical event to send such a signal. As it now was, the main element was upcoming elections in Estonia, I felt. And that is why I said maybe it was not the right moment and definitely it seems not to have been a concerted action together with our partners and allies. And I don't think you should put your partners in the situation where they need to then either to come and support you, do the same or not, if you haven't thoroughly consulted and orchestrated your move. This clearly wasn't the case. But of course, technically, uh, it is one of the steps which you could to show that you are not very happy with what your neighbor is doing. I know you can probably waste a lot of time pondering roads not travelled, especially when there is a major crisis which does need addressing, but do you think there's any argument that if there had been more of that sort of thing, i.e. throwing out Russian diplomats, even closing their embassies and suspending relations after, well, whichever provocation you like, Georgia, Crimea, the Skripal poisoning, that Russia may have moderated its behaviour or wound its neck in a little bit? 
This is very hard to say, but I do think that at least we would have a clearer consciousness if we had done so already after the Georgian crisis stood firm, maybe gave the opportunity to enlarge NATO, at least for Ukraine, which at that time wasn't technically a country at war. And we didn't do that. There are also, of course, reasons that you might consider whether Ukraine was defendable, I mean, being deep in the territory of East and so on, so on. But I think there are things which we can consider and speculate, but it doesn't help us at all today. The most important thing which we need to think back is that in 1991, when Soviet Union collapsed, West was very happy to play the game. This was Soviet Union, which is responsible for Stalin, for Hungary, for Czech Republic, not Russia. And we shouldn't have believed it. We should have insisted that in response to a Western rather extensive economic support and also acceptance to the markets, etc., Russia should have at least started to teach in its primary and secondary schools proper history. And why this is important is now when we come to the end of this hot war, Whichever way it ends, I believe Ukraine wins, but I don't know what Ukraine will define as a win. But then we should definitely not go back to business as usual before Russia is teaching current aggression in schools. Which does partially answer the next question I wanted to ask you, which is what you think a future relationship can look like with Russia, and specifically for Estonia, because that is an irreducible fact of life. You will always be Russia's neighbour, and Russia will always be a big country, and Estonia will always be a small country. Do you envisage a time at which there might be a relationship between the Baltics and Russia akin to, and the history in some ways is not dissimilar, that the Benelux countries now have with Germany? I've always been one of those who doesn't believe that Russia is somehow inherently incapable of turning into a normal, democratic and free country. And I believed it will happen during Yeltsin time. It didn't. And we don't know whether this was kind of destiny of the country or just, I mean, bad human resources decisions which led to that. Because, I mean, selecting a successor, not through free elections, but as it was done, I mean, for Putin... This already showed that Russia is not ready to become a democracy at that moment. But I cannot accept that it is in principle impossible. So I would say yes, but we shouldn't pretend this has happened if this hasn't happened. For example, let's imagine that the regime decides to change Putin for a more presentable face who then tries to patch his things over. We shouldn't really, I mean, accept this unless there is a real, real change. Of course, we will very much want to, and our businesses will very much want to, and we know all there are big businesses who have simply parked their Russian operations, have sold them, but have uh, buyback clauses in their contracts and so on, so on. But I think politicians should be very loud and clear in the foreseeable future because we don't see a quick regime change in Russia. We cannot trade, we cannot deal with that country in a normal way, which of course doesn't mean there should be an iron wall built and no contacts whatsoever. But we should be adamant for Russia now to change that we are not giving Russia time to rearm and then hit back in the next 10 years. And just finally, a question that you can answer as tactfully as you like. Jens Stoltenberg is, of course, stepping down as Secretary General of NATO in October. Do you think it is perhaps arguably time NATO had a female Secretary General, very possibly from Eastern Europe or the Baltic states? Luckily, Eastern Europe and Baltic states have currently a high number of female presidents, prime ministers NATO could choose from, and I really suggest they should do so. That was the former president of Estonia, Kirsty Kaljulaid, speaking to us at the Munich Security Conference. 
The diplomacy around a crisis such as Russia's attack on Ukraine is conducted at any number of levels. One of the more rarefied is the diplomacy pursued by those heads of state who are not encumbered by also being head of government. Our next guest is one such, Natasha Pierce Musa, President of Slovenia, a position she has held since becoming the first woman to be elected to the position last December. I began by asking President Musa what her first few weeks in the job have been like. I just couldn't totally imagine what my role is going to be because I was never a member of any political party. I was the observer for many years, but I decided to run for a president from my heart. I mean, a lot of people were asking me to do it. It was a hard way, a long way. I had to announce my candidacy way ahead of everybody else because I knew it's going to be a long run, six months altogether. And, you know, I was heavily attacked from both left and right. Not having a political support was not easy. And if you are going to ask me how did I do it, my answer is I honestly do not know. <laughs> but I must have done something right in my previous 25 years. And here I am learning fast, knowing about the region a lot already from my previous works. I used to work for the Council of Europe. I was the expert on the field of data protection for Western Balkan countries, for Moldova, Georgia, Azerbaijan, Ukraine. I worked in Ukraine a lot. So my international experience is a bit different, you know, from non-political point of view. It's also very important to mention that it's the first time a woman is a president in my country. I broke the glass ceiling. But I'm looking forward to my five-year mandate and I'll try to do my best for my country and for the international community. I have my values. I am a human rights lawyer, so this is what I believe in. That's my virus. <laughs> Within the constraints placed on the role, though, by Slovenia's constitution, how much freedom do you have to define it? All the freedom that I want to, because constitutionally, the role of a president is like similar like in countries where they have parliamentary democracy. So it's not a presidential democracy. So it's a lot of protocol obligations. I'm the supreme commander of the Slovenian army. And at the end, you know, watching the position of a president being directly elected, it gives you the power to communicate to the people. And at the end, it's basically... All that I have is the power of words. So that's why I have to use them carefully. But whenever I will feel that something needed to be done, I'll do it. Within the context of what I'm sure is the theme that has dominated this weekend, which is Russia's war in Ukraine, do you think presidents in a position similar to yours, and I notice you've already met with Zoran Milanovic in Croatia, Frank-Walter Steinmeier here in Germany, do you have an opportunity that perhaps heads of state who are more directly political don't have? Again, the presidential power lies in communicating with the people. Why am I saying this? If you do not have a support of your own nations, for example, to give the weapons to Ukraine, then the job is much, much, much harder. And, you know, more south you go from Slovenian perspective, more people are pro-Russian oriented. So it's very difficult, you know, in the region of the Western Balkan to persuade the orientation of European Union right now. In Slovenia, we also have some, you know, Eurosceptics, but 
I'm really proud to say that the politics in Slovenia, no matter whether it is left or right, we have a lot of fights between each other. But when we discuss Ukraine, we are unified in the position what European Union has to do to support Ukraine as long as it's needed. Also, you know, discussing the dangers behind the scenes, a lot of people do not see. For example, I had a really, really fruitful discussion today with Maya Sandu, the Moldavian president. And at the end, I felt in what position my colleague from Moldova is right now, how much pressure is on her burden. I just more and more believe that we need to stay unified in European Union. We need to show President Putin and Russia that what he did is not going to be forgotten. That's the fact. Being a lawyer, I know who the aggressor is. I know who violated the international law, the Charter of United Nations. And there is no excuse here. And I often say also to my people, when I talk to individuals in my country, I just say, please never forget where civilians are hurt. It's not Russia. Civilians are killed in Ukraine. Ukraine is without energy. Ukraine has ruined homes, not Russia. And the whole international community needs to, if I may say, boost the activities. We need to try more and do better to persuade the countries in Africa, in Latin America, what the war is all about. As a president, I am receiving the accredited diagramas of foreign ambassadors. And just a couple of weeks ago, the Peruvian ambassador to Slovenia was visiting my presidential palace. And all he could say about Ukraine, you know, was, yeah, we are without food. We don't get seeds. They only see consequences. And it's, at the end, our obligation to explain that as many politicians in Munich said, statesmen, states ladies, they said that this is a war of values at the end. And I was actually, may I say, pleasantly surprised that the vice president of the United States, Kamala Harris, today said that what Russia did is a crime against humanity. And she said this three times in her speech. So she was really assenting what this war is all about. I just want to go back to that point you were making about that Russophilia, if you like, that does exist in the Balkans further south of where you are. Do you think there's a case that the EU has yet to do a good enough job of explaining itself in that part of the world? Because there's there's a weird contradiction there that there is that pro-Russian attitude at large, especially in Serbia and Republic of Srpska, most obviously, but yet all these countries, in theory, are applicant nations to the EU. When you are mentioning the Western Balkan countries, it's even hard to explain to Slovenians sometimes what's going on, (laughs) despite the fact that we were part of ex-Yugoslavia. So, you know, European Union member states think that we understand the region better. We do, in a way. For example, from the legal point of view, I understand the law because we have the same roots. I do understand the mentality. But at the end, discussing with presidents from the Western Balkan countries... I see so many tensions, so many open possible conflict doors that it's, for me, also very hard to find a right way 
how to continue the discussion. For example, here I have to mention the Bordo Brioni process. I don't know whether you've heard of this one. It was started 10 years ago by my predecessor, Mr. Borut Pahor. And all the presidents of the Western Balkan do meet once a year. Mm-hmm. And last year, when this meeting of Bordo Brioni process was held in Slovenia, there was so many tension in the room, you know, that my predecessor said to me, Natasha, please promise me that you will continue the process because as long as we do have a dialogue between each other, there is hope. And I promised him that I will continue the process. I have an idea how to maybe cut the political tension for a while. And when I had a meeting with President Milanovic, today with Josa Osmani, the Kosovo president, and with President Zhukanovic of Montenegro, we've met yesterday, I said, would it be a good idea that we have a discussion which is not connected to, you know, core politics, but should we just for a while forget about the politics and see what we do have in common? And I said, let's discuss climate change. Let's discuss youth, because four million people migrated from Western Balkan countries in the last 10 years. That's the number of two Slovenias. And all of them said, let's try. And today, when I had a discussion with Maya Sandu, I got another idea. (laughs) We have to discuss misinformation and disinformation as well, because the influence of the media in the region of Western Balkans and in Moldova and in Georgia is something we must not neglect. Russia today opened an affiliate in Serbia. And you know what the main advertising posts on Russia Today Serbia are? Wagner Group ads. I think that the main responsibility lies on us politicians. The higher you are, more careful you have to be in words. Also to inform the people and make awareness about fake news, misinformation, disinformation. It's on us. And second in line, but not less important, are the media. That was the president of Slovenia, Natasha Pierce Musa, speaking to us at the Munich Security Conference. Finally on today's show, we hear from Ingrida Shimonita, the Prime Minister of Lithuania. I began by asking if the Prime Minister thinks that the rest of Europe has finally started listening to the Baltic states about Russia's true nature and understanding that Russia is not just another European country. Well, I hear a lot of credit for the fact that we've been warning our friends and partners and that this was not, as some critics were putting that, this was not our trauma speaking, but that was a rationality behind this, because we also heard those, you know, this is your trauma speaking. So yeah, sometimes uh, your historical past might weigh on you in quite a productive way. But this also brought us an ability to see what maybe other countries were not seeing properly, because they were betting on this idea that you can trade Russia into civilization. The bad thing was that we still let democratic world, we still let Putin do whatever he wants inside the country, meaning corrupt, capitalize on all the welfare that, I mean, on assets that belongs to the people. But people were thinking, oh, as long as we can deal with him, like on a high level, then it doesn't matter what happens inside. But that mattered a lot because it built the circumstances for Russia to become what it is now, a country that can attack the other country and where the society remains deaf and dumb on what is happening. And there is no resilience, no, no protest, no nothing. And it seems like 
whatever sanctions you impose on Russia, nobody even screams because it seems like we are becoming stronger. It's better. And better. Of course, this is a pose. Then we must understand this. But I mean, it's good that we stopped thinking that Putin is a politician in a Western sense of view, an accountable one. He's not accountable. Just to pick up on that, that idea that the rest of Europe, Western Europe in particular, has at last understood that Vladimir Putin does not necessarily think about things the same way they do. Do you see a same, the same disconnect in this kind of anguished incrementalism we've seen about equipping Ukraine and arming Ukraine, worrying that every next step, whether it's tanks, whether it's missiles, whether it's aircraft, is going to be the escalation that for some reason or other Russia finds intolerable. Do you think Vladimir Putin actually cares about any of these red lines that the West keeps drawing for itself? Yeah, I'm sure he doesn't, because in so many cases, he or his people around him on their social media and everywhere were saying this will be a red line, that will be a red line, and this will be a red line. And whatever happened, there was no real reaction. But on the other hand, anytime he doesn't like the situation, he steps out and says, I have a nuclear bomb here. So why don't you listen? And, you know, I think it has a completely parallel sort of track, the track that we think and the track that he's thinking, because he's not be stopped if Western countries decide not to provide weapons. I mean, that would be delusional to think. And on the other side, you cannot calculate his steps, because in many cases, they are, well, hardly explained by a conventional logic. We know that all the destruction of energy systems started when there was an incident on the Kerch Bridge. And that was pure revenge. And then he decided he will take this attack against the civilians, not the military people, but the civilians, Ukrainian society. And in the meantime, when European countries discuss, can we send leopards or can we send something else? It has nothing to do with what Putin is planning with his chief commanders. Just finally then, later this year, Lithuania will of course be hosting the NATO summit. It will be Jens Stoltenberg's last summit as Secretary General. He has confirmed that he is leaving in October. Do you think it is possibly time that NATO had a secretary general who was not only a woman, but possibly from the eastern, dare I say, the Baltic states, perhaps a current or former, let's say, current holder of high office? Well, I know that in circumstances like that, there are so <laughs> many names flying very high. And at the end of the day, uh, it might be a, a name that nobody was expecting even <laughs> to hear. So this is, I hope that secretary general for next term will be equally strong and unifying, able to unify the alliance vis-a-vis -vis the threats that we face. But there are quite many good candidates for that, I think. That was the Prime Minister of Lithuania, Ingrida Shimonita, speaking to us from the Munich Security Conference. That's it for this episode of The Foreign Desk. We'll be back next week and look out for The Foreign Desk Explainer, available every Wednesday. The Foreign Desk was produced by Emma Searle and Christy O'Grady. Christy also produces The Foreign Desk Explainer. To contact The Foreign Desk team, you can email emma at es at monocle.com and don't forget to subscribe to Monocle magazine and our free daily email bulletins by heading to our website at monocle.com. From me, Andrew Muller, thanks very much for listening. Until next time, goodbye.